Welcome to Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we have a special episode and a special guest here at Practically Political, which we're excited to get into with. Jason Fitchner is the chief economist and a vice president at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He's an economic expert, has a PhD in economics, former Mercatus fellow uh, or Mercatus Center. Uh, I don't know what your title was there. Senior research fellow. Uh, and I'm a big fan of Mercatus. So, Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you both. So, Jason, uh, we just love to hear, and I know you're fresh off of Capitol Hill. How did your testimony go? T tell our audience a bit what you were testifying as it relates to the debt ceiling. Just, just lay out the facts first. The uh, the Senate Budget Committee had a hearing today um, on basically debt ceiling and the House passed bill and what that might mean as we get closer to what we call the X state here. Um, there's a limit on how much the Treasury is allowed to borrow. It's currently about $34 trillion. And we hit that in January. And since then, the Treasury has been doing something they call extraordinary measures, which aren't that extraordinary, but it's a little bit more of a cash management flow to allow them to keep paying our bills in full without having to borrow additional money. Uh, Secretary Yellen has said that the date at which they can no longer use extraordinary measures will actually hit January or June 1st. So we're getting very close. Uh, we at the Bipartisan Policy Center follow this and we're going to have an updated analysis of our own next week. And so the testimony today was with me and a couple of the panelists about what would happen to the macro economy if we did go over the cliff. Um, should we look, do budget negotiations, make sure we actually pass the debt ceiling, but also control our fiscal spending because the deficit and debt is way out of control right now. We've got to do something. So how do we bring the parties together to do it in a bipartisan way? Yes. Well, I, uh, I think that is very, a very good point, Jason. I think this is something we're all concerned with. You know, as far as the debt ceiling goes, Ronald Reagan said, uh, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And I think this is political hostage taking, plain and simple. I think that this idea that we should negotiate over money that's already been spent, over obligations that we've already incurred, is, is really quite silly. And I think it's counterproductive. And when the debt ceiling was created in 1917, obviously it was created so Congress didn't have to go or the Treasury didn't have to go to Congress every time it wanted to pay some obligations. But they made the mistake of leaving it with Congress, so it has to be approved. And if you look over the history of it, uh, there's only really been two hostage situations. That's this year and that 2011. The other times there were government shutdowns, there were threats, but it never really came to this. And so I think what you need to have is a uh, clean limit, and then let's talk about spending. I, everyone agrees spending is out of control, but I would say that the majority of spending has been incurred under Republican presidents, more than one quarter of it just under Donald Trump. And the debt limit was raised, the debt limit was raised three times under him. So again, I think a clean limit is what you need. And then we should sit down and seriously negotiate uh, about how we can reduce our spending because it, it is out of control. And the only other thing I would say is that what they're talking about is unrealistic because entitlements are off the table and apparently defense is off the table. So that only leaves one sixth of the budget over which you can negotiate. Isn't that, isn't that correct, Jason? Yeah, Davey, we had a few good points. I think it's important for people to understand that the major driver of our fiscal problems is not the discretionary spending. Discretionary spending has gone up, but it is entitlements. It is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And we're getting to the point where if you look historically across our budget, We've been taking in 
roughly about 18% of GDP in revenues and around 20% in outlays. Those numbers are going up to outlays about 2033 being 25% of GDP and the tax revenues being 20 to 18%. So there's a big gap we can solve. We're not gonna do it on defense. We're not gonna do it on veterans benefits. We're not gonna do it on education. Entitlements have to be on the table and it's disingenuous not to. Your point about the debt ceiling, you're right, when they first started it, it was a cash management tool. It was basically Treasury telling Congress, you've approved us to spend this kind of money in a 12 month period, but revenues come in lumpy, so let us borrow some money and we'll pay it back at the end of the year. And now it's just become something which it no longer controls spending. It's kind of outused its uh, usefulness. <clears throat> and it's used solely as a way to bring attention to our problems. But it's separate. You used to have, if you remember when Dick Gephardt uh, was the you know, House Speaker, they had something called the Gephardt Rule, which is if you passed a budget resolution, you had deemed passed an increase in the debt ceiling. So they were together. And in some ways, we should probably do that again. Because now if we talk about a debt ceiling debate now, we're still going to worry about the budget debate that comes this fall. And we're spending so much time on this hostage-taking brinkmanship that we're not making progress. And so I would just argue that the debt ceiling no longer serves a useful function, except for us to have discussions and debates about the budget, but there's a better avenue to do that. And what do you think of the House GOP plan? I mean, and, and I, um, you know, I put out a blog post looking at the history that the, there's been a lot of negotiating around the debt limit um, you know, over and over, 1985, 1987, 1990, 93, 96, 97, 09, 2011. There are lots of uh, negotiating uh, measures that have happened as it relates to the debt limit. Um, so. That's why I think there's a lot of histrionics around this, this conversation right now, when if you look at the past, it's actually something that has, you know, often been on the table. But I think the uh, the point that you made, Jason, on entitlements is 100 percent correct. And The Wall Street Journal had a really good op ed about how basically um, there is going to be a Biden, Trump, whoever. I mean, those are the two most likely front runners for 24. They called it the Biden-Trump Social Security cut because under current law, if nothing happens, there's going to be, I believe, a 23% cut to benefits uh, immediately once it runs out in about 11 years. So, uh, and, and so neither of them wants to take ownership of it, and it's going to be a much more stark drop. So I guess, so I guess my question is, do you think this histrionics now is different compared to what was in the past? And then, what do you think of this House budget? And do you think that there's any real chance for entitlement changes on Social Security or Medicare? Oh, those are big questions. Uh, let, let's kind of jump around with, with the House bill. Um, the House gets credit for passing something. So I, I think what's important to note, and this is something that Senator Grassley, who's the ranking member of the Budget Committee on the Senate side, said today, was this is not the end-all, be-all. It should be the start of a negotiation. And you can't negotiate if you're not at the table. So I'm pleased that next week President Biden has asked Senator, House member Leader McCarthy to come, Speaker McCarthy to show up. And he's asking you know, for the senators to show up, Senator Schumer. Hopefully now we're starting a negotiation process. I think, unfortunately, I would like to see the negotiation process start 90 days ago and, and not this coming week because we're losing some time. But the, the House gets credit for passing something because that says, here's our offer, now come negotiate. And I think that's going to be part of the negotiation process going through. We we'll probably will see something in which they come to some sort of arrangement where both sides can save pace, save pace and say they got something for it so we can avoid having a default on payments. Um, with Social Security reform, I was very disappointed that President Biden and the Republicans said that Social Security was off the table, because uh, we do have to do something with that. And, and to your point, Carrie, you've been 
it's very important to point out to the public that current law, if nothing is done, means benefits get cut. It is not current law means taxes get increased. And in fact, even if you're thinking about raising and making up the shortfall through general revenue transfers, that would still require 60 votes in the Congress, in the Senate, to change the law to allow for general revenues to fund Social Security. That's never happened before. So we start thinking about what's going to happen. I think there's a difference, but Congress seems very good at waiting until the last minute to do something. They don't seem to want to do things proactively. And I'm very concerned we're going to get to the point where we're going to hit 2033, which is when the old age trust fund becomes is estimated to be depleted. 2034 is when the combined disability and retirement trust funds are scheduled to be depleted. And we're going to get three, six months out of that, and Congress will be forced to do something. But the delta when we get there is larger. It'll be larger tax increases if you want to solve the 75-year solvency or larger benefit cuts, or looking at some sort of, again, general revenue transfers to make up the difference, which hasn't happened before. So I, I think the negotiation should happen. One thing about the hearing today in the Senate Budget Committee was there was bipartisan support for budget process reform, which is not sexy, it's hard to do, but both uh, Senator Whitehouse and Senator Grassley and members of the Budget Committee say we need to do something soon. So I'm hopeful potentially that after we get through this debt ceiling issue and the next budget cycle, maybe we can turn to budget process reform again and get the House and Senate to agree on how to move forward so we don't have these situations where we're getting gridlocked and deadlocked over a debt ceiling or government shutdowns. Yeah, and, and I would just add, I think it's it's not apples to apples to list all those years. Again, the 2011 was the only other year where you had real hostage politicking here. And this year, I have far less faith in the members of Congress. I think you know there's a dimwittedness factor in the GOP House that I think a lot of these people don't these people don't even know how the process works and. Marjorie Taylor Greene has threatened that if we don't behave, she's going to sick the gazpacho police on us. So we, we, ought to, we ought to choose our words carefully here. But the other thing I would add is I think there is a way to save face, and that is if the president would agree to, okay, we're going to reduce next year's budget by X percent, and then Kevin McCarthy would agree, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll push off the debate will have a temporary debt ceiling increase for a certain number of months. I think that would allow them to both save face. It would lock in some cuts. I think that's the least unattractive option here. I really agree with uh, Kerry that both Trump and Biden are very culpable on this entitlement thing, because that's one of the reasons that Trump got elected, because he was one of the first, about the first Republican in memory, who said, unlike the Paul Ryan model, I'm not going to touch entitlements. And Biden, while he got a political win, maybe during the State of the Union address, he boxed everyone in to saying that they're not going to touch entitlements. So Congress is in a real pickle. And there's a few brave senators like Bill Cassidy of Louisiana who has said, look, if we don't do something, it's going to be done for us. So I'm really hoping that that we'll stop that we'll stop being chickens, because, again, you know, this this stuff is like the balanced budget amendment. Congress is too chicken to do what they want. They could balance the budget anytime they want it. So they, they try to offload it to other mechanisms to force other people's hands. And it's really just wimpy government. Yeah, Dave, two, two quick points before Kerry comes in. Um, one, with Bill Cassidy, Senator Cassidy, we did a fireside chat I did with him a week ago. So if people want to Google Jason Fickner, Bill Cassidy, Bipartisan Policy Center, fireside chat, he does talk about how he's very disappointed in President Biden and former President Trump not standing up and talking about Social Security reform. That's, that's very important. And then I would, you know, the point about 2011, they're not apples to apples, but what Kerry's point was, I think, is 
the debt ceiling has been used, coupled with budget reforms, to make some serious changes in the budget outlays and to have discretionary caps or changes. And that's been, I think, one of the successes of it. But again, it's the wrong vehicle, in my opinion. It's just been used that way in the past. And I would like to move forward so we're not not repeating this again. So you mentioned what would be an easy sort of saving face. If we do anything on the debt ceiling, like a short-term extension, for the love of anything holy, Dave, let's push it out past the election. The last thing I want to do is spend more time on debt ceiling negotiations and hostage taking in the fall or before the election, in which petitions are going to get even harder to, to break. No, and even the Republican plan only extends it for a year. So we're going to be dealing with this six that. months before the election. Got that it. is wow. ridiculous. And, and the only other point I would make is that, yes, there have been times where it's been part of the process. But the, when this hostage taking, coincidentally, I don't think so, only happens when you have a Republican Congress or a, a Republican House and Democrats in control of the White House. Donald Trump, again, 25% of the national debt was incurred under his watch. The debt limit was raised three times, okay? So maybe Kerry would acknowledge that uh, Democrats should have held his feet to the fire then. Well, uh, I think that the the fact of the matter is that the record level of spending, like we're in a whole brave new era right now. Like we're talking about $31.4 trillion. That's insane. It shouldn't be that way. The fact that we spent, you know, six trillion dollars and we're treating the U.S. dollar like monopoly money and you're having uh, inflation up the wazoo in part because we treat the U.S. dollar like it's monopoly money. This is a whole different ballgame. So whatever happened in the past and maybe, Dave, we can disagree about how it was used or whatever. It's a whole new era. And so I think we need to think about things in a new way. And partially, Joe Biden is being very intransigent in the sense that he's not realizing as Obama said that elections have consequences and the House has said this is what needs to happen. And when you actually look at at what's in the House bill, I I think a lot of it's really reasonable. A lot of it pulled us really well. Uh, Things like work requirements for able-bodied adults. I mean, that's very, very popular. Um, Things like uh, domestic uh, boosting domestic energy production, uh, nixing, you know, the excessive funding for these 87,000 new IRS agents to go after your PayPal transactions. And um, it's just and then there's the, you know, $300 billion slush fund that needs to go away for the green energy, um, you know, basically crony capitalism stuff. So it's all it's all good stuff. And um, I guess, Jason, my question is. Do you guys have a position on the bill itself? I understand you're giving credit, but like, what's your read on the actual provisions, either you as yourself or, or BPC? And then also, what's your read on the extraordinary measures? Do you agree with the, the the June 1st deadline as far as that's when the extraordinary measures kick out? So I'll, I'll, I'll work backwards on the June 1st one first. Uh, we're going to have new estimates come out next week, Tuesday. So stay tuned for the BPC's X date update next week, Tuesday. I think what we're seeing is interesting is that the revenues coming in to the IRS are lower this year than they were in previous years. And part of that is a dual whammy. One, a little bit of capital gains are coming in lower than before, but also because of disasters in several states, for example, California, one of our largest, most populous, biggest economic state, the IRS gave them a six-month extension to file. So the revenues from that state are being are lower than they would be normally, and they're going to come in later. So the original date we thought might be July or August is now coming in a little earlier because the revenues haven't shown up, but they'll come on later. But I, I do think you're going to see a range somewhere between June and maybe August 1st, roughly, 
but I don't want to, you know, we'll find out what happens when we come out our numbers next week, Tuesday. Um, but it's a focal point. And, and I think whether or not it happens June 1st, June 15th, July 1st, it's coming. It doesn't mean we can ignore the problem, right? So we got to do something. Um, with the provisions of the House bill, it's a little bit mixed. Again, this is part of a negotiation. Um, you know, one thing I can speak to is the student loan issue. Um, I know the Supreme Court is going to rule and say it's unconstitutional, um, but that is one that seems like it has a lot of moral hazard problems that's probably bad public policy. And we could do a lot better on the distributional side of student loans to make sure that those who really deserve and need help are the ones that get it. And that's my concern with the way the administration has handled student loans. On the energy credits, I think there's a need for some form of energy and permitting reform. Because if you want to accelerate green energy technology, you need to do it in a nuanced way, but it shouldn't be done in a way that's like former Solyndra and you're giving you know, corporate uh, giveaways that don't need to be. Again, it needs to be more targeted. And that's one of the things I think we're missing in this conversation is we're putting everything in a bucket and saying everything's bad, everything's good, as opposed to pulling back and saying, how can we target this to make it more efficient, more operational and better and solve the original intent we're trying to solve? And I think the House bill is trying to get there, but it puts a lot of it in and there was no hearings, there's no nuance. But again, this is part of the conversation and let's start the discussion. Let's have Senate sit down with the House and President Biden and walk through where they can compromise. And I think that's, again, this is a good start. It's a start of a discussion, not the end of a discussion. Well, and I would just add again that whatever you think of the Inflation Reduction Act, and I have my issues with it, I think the compromise it struck was, yes, we need to invest in, in alternative energy, but the grid's not there yet. So we also need to subsidize fossil fuels to help that transition. And that's what the bill does. As far as, as far as the IRS, this is the classic, like, reminds me of the, the Democrats with push grandma off the cliff with Obamacare. You know, the IRS is chronically underfunded. For every $1 we spend on tax collection, we can get $4. And it's not, as Chuck Grassley says, agents kicking down doors with AR-15s and attacking small businesses, which is absurd. It's investments in infrastructure, computer systems, and staff. But I want to move on to a final point, and that is I'm going to read something from the 14th Amendment. It says that uh, that the sorry, the lighting here is not very good, but the that the uh, the ability of the uh, the uh, the ability of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of, of uh, pensions and bounties for servers and surpassing insurrection and rebellion shall not be questioned. So I guess my question for you, Jason, is how realistic is taking this 14th Amendment approach and could Congress prioritize, say, okay, we're going to pay our bondholders first so we don't default, and then we're going to have a public list of how we're going to prioritize paying our bills to not only extend it as long as possible, but then to put pressure on Congress, because when people know they're going to lose specific things, that might uh, force action more than just a general th threat of default. Yeah, I, I don't know if the 14th Amendment would hold up in court, but again, it could buy the administration time. The question is, do they want to go that route? Uh, I do think Treasury can prioritize certain payments. There were, back in 2011, there was tabletop exercises where we now discovered that Treasury, the Federal Reserve, had worked on exercises to show they could prioritize payments for interest on the debt. Social Security, which just has legal authority to pay because of the trust funds. The longer you'd go, though, the more it cascades and it gets becomes harder. And again, there's no politically easy answer here. Imagine we do prioritize interest in the debt. So technically, there's no default on our debt, but we delay some payments or don't make some other payments and you're defaulting on those payments. 
but you just made a political decision. You've paid interest in the debt, which means a lot of foreign government holders, including China, are going to get paid, and you're not going to pay education or veterans benefits. So that's a political problem right there. So prioritization can avoid a technical default, but it doesn't solve your problem of not paying the other bills. So this has to be resolved. I mean, people who think we can just go over the edge and it's all fine is not true. You're still going to have economic problems and political problems. So they better come and solve this, solve this issue before we hit whatever the actual true date is, whether it's June 1st, June 15th, or somewhere late in the summer. Well, I, I found very interesting polling uh, from Echelon Insights. They do uh, really great, great bipartisan work. And they found that 74% of Americans say they want negotiations around the debt limit. So that's ultimately what the people want. Uh, and I think we should listen to them. And But I agree, we shouldn't take it lightly and and it's not a game. And I agree. I wish they would have come to the table much earlier. It's a focal point. I mean, so one of the one of the remaining benefits, if there are any, of the debt limit, because it does not control spending, is it now forces attention on the issue of government spending, which often we don't get every year with the budget process, but we are getting it now. So you're paying attention, I'm paying attention, Congress is paying attention, the media is paying attention, the markets are paying attention, foreign governments are paying attention. Now we're having a discussion about deficits and debt and government spending, which I think is a good thing to have. I wish we could just have it as part of a normal process and not when the debt ceiling gets reached and an arbitrary number that's set for some time in the future. All right. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. What a great debate. Jason, it's been so much fun having you on. I hope you'll come back and uh, we could talk about this for hours. It's a relevant topic, obviously, but it's touches on so many other things that are driving our political discourse these days. So thank you for your, your expertise on this. It's been a real pleasure having you. And thanks to all of you for joining us for another episode of Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we'll catch you next time.